Hey guys, welcome to another episode of MC Anime. MC here. We have another special guest with us today. Uh, Atley Mc... At, no. Daniel Atley McPhail. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. So she's the uh, writer, author, and publisher of eSpec Books. With, and this particular topic that we are doing is anthology and anthology as a whole for like theme stories so tell us a little bit about yourself and where they can find you and a little bit what you do i'm danielle ackley mcphail i started out as an author and over the years have migrated to being a publisher of eSpec books i have a long history of themed anthologies two of the ones that we are best known for are the Badass Fairies Anthologies and the Defending the Future Anthologies. These are the two first books in those. The first anthology I ever put together was almost 20 years ago, No Longer Dreams. So I've been at it a while. I do a lot of themed anthologies because I like playing with concepts and finding interesting ways to approach them. So one of the reasons that you're having me here today is you read my story, Windows to the Soul, in COVID-19. That was actually a reprint. And the book that it is from is called After Punk, Steam Power Tales of the Afterlife. And this was we were playing with all different kinds of death tradition and afterlife tradition with a steampunk theme oh okay so on social media you can find me just about anywhere as danielle ackley mcphail not hard to find there's only one of me and our website is eSpecbooks.com. my own is shenadare.com which uh, it's S I D H E N A D A I R E dot com, which is Celtic for Elf of the Oak. <laughs> Ooh, sounds like an original character. All right, so I guess we can start going to the anthology process. And how do how does someone submit an anthology and get noted for that credit? Um, so if someone wants to put together an anthology, they decide what it's going to be built around, whether it's just going to be a collection of stories with no particular theme, or if it's going to have an overarching theme that all the stories tie into. So for me, um, After Punk and Windows to the Soul were inspired by this little figurine that was a gift from a friend. And it just spoke to me to the point that I had to write a collection. I had to write that story and, and build a collection around it. <laughs> um, so you decide what it is that you're looking for. For me, I tend to do closed submissions because I don't have a lot of time. I do a lot of the work myself. But a lot of people do open submissions that they post on Facebook groups or um, Raylan.com or do a trope. There's a lot of different places where you can post anthology 
calls for submissions. So you basically follow the guidelines. That is the first thing that you do, no matter where you're submitting or what the theme of the anthology is. That is your first goal is to follow the guidelines. Because okay. There's nothing we hate more than when those are ignored. <laughs> gotcha. So let's say you're doing on your cyberpunk anthology. Someone submits something about Easter had nothing to do with cyberpunk. You have to dismiss that and like you look at it as like, well, that was a waste of time. Exactly. And it's even more basic than that because it's not just not following the theme, mm-hmm. but sometimes um, people get very creative with how they submit things. And that creates a lot of work and distraction for us when we're just trying to figure out if you've written a good story. How creative on submitting? There's I think that needs a, some elaboration. Yeah, when, when, when you write something and you're going to submit it somewhere, there's been a long-standing standard format that you put it in so that, you know, everything is uniform and you, you're not creating a lot of extra work for the editor. But uh, okay. that format, um, you know, the format that you, you put a piece of writing in when things started to be online and people had blogs and stuff they kind of created their own format that's different from a print submission and people started using that format when they submitted to you know like for anthologies or something like that and it creates a lot of issues when you're creating a print book and someone sends you something that's in a digital style format. Okay, so... <laughs> I, I know, it sounds really odd, and it seems really So, nitpicky. well, I uh, thought I was understanding, and then I heard digital style. So, so, when you post... Let me explain. When you post on a blog, usually you don't indent the text. Oh, uh, okay. You don't do double spaces, and you put an extra space in between the paragraphs. So little things like that, that people are used to doing when they're like posting on a blog or online or on a website. When you submit that to someone who is reading fiction to edit it or to decide if they want to print it, it's difficult. It's not in an easily modified format. Um, it's not the way that they expect to receive it, so they have to change it so that everything is the same. You know, especially mm. with an anthology where you're getting work from multiple authors, if everyone is doing it a different way and they might use a word program that puts special coding in to do different things, like okay. in Word, you, you can create bookmarks so that you can go right to a chapter or something like that. When a computer file contains those types of coding, it can really mess things up when you go to actually produce the book. So if you had that in there, and I didn't know it, um, and I went to typeset the book, all of a sudden it's not working properly because there's all this stuff in there that I can't see. Oh, okay. There's punctuation, and one person uses ellipses and they put a space before and after or even in between each dot 
and somebody else just runs all the dots together. It's little inconsistencies that when we go to produce the book, if we miss them, it looks sloppy. And if we have to go through and change them, it's a lot of extra work. Yeah. So most publishers will post standard guidelines of how they want you to treat different aspects of the story. Like it used to be when before the age of the internet, when all manuscripts were physical, you would have to submit, um, like if you wanted a word in italics in your manuscript, you would underline it because okay. it would be very easy to miss if you put it in italics. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've done that before too. Yeah. Uh, uh, if I wanted like to, like I've used like, if I put it in italics, sometimes I just underlined it because that's what I thought. I was told that if you underline it, it can be a replacement for italics. Yeah. Uh, I don't and remember was... where I learned that, but I do remember learning that. I did pay yeah. attention in English class, so. You, you probably <laughs> learned it in school because before we had the internet and before we had digital submissions, you needed to do things like that to make sure that when they reproduced it, when they put it into an actual book, that they caught all of those little things that you wanted, whether it was bold or italic or some other thing. Um, you couldn't necessarily just put it in that. For one thing, a lot of typewriters didn't have the capability of doing yeah. italic text. And also, you can't really write in italics as much either, so... Yeah, you wouldn't be able... It, it's too easy to make mistakes when you're physically typesetting from a yeah. printed page if you didn't have those little things. But now that we have computers and digital submissions, you don't really need those. So, okay. so basically, the submission guidelines are exactly how they want you to treat individual aspects of your writing so that everybody does it the same way. Okay. When they make it a book, everything's the same and uniform. So let's say... You're very specific about these guidelines. Instead of one particular citation format, like MLA format, with uh, you can also combine APA, like this the footnotes, but MLL format. That type of thing you can do with a custom guideline for anthology submitting. So, if if that was applicable to what you were doing, publishers would have. You know, there's a lot of different styles out there. So each publisher might have one that they prefer. Okay. And that's something that they would mention in the guidelines. Oh, okay. So what is what is your particular style for that you like people to submit? <laughs> I just use the standard format where the text is double-spaced and... Um, for me, I don't do an indent or a tab. You know, Word has it where we'll auto automatically indent it. Gotcha. So if somebody uses a tab and I implement the auto indent, then it messes me up. Um, 12 point, a, a, a common easy font like Courier or New Times Roman. Oh, you don't... I don't have very complicated submission guidelines. Gotcha. But... Uh, there, there are standards out there as well. Yeah. And you don't want someone to pass those standards because 
it makes your job a lot more difficult. Plus, yeah. you'd probably doing with so many submissions, just the fact that you had to convert it over, that might be a deterrent yeah. to publish it in the in the final product of the anthology, right? Exactly. And that's one of the reasons that it's important to, to follow the guidelines because there are editors out there that receive hundreds, even thousands of submissions. And they're looking for reasons to not read all of them. So if you have too many mistakes on the first page, or you don't follow the guidelines, or you don't submit it the right way, they'll just skip it and go on to somebody that did do it correctly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So where is your, either your favorite anthology that you have organized or you have submitted for? done a lot of really good books. I think so it's not quite an anthology. Okay. But we created recently we created a series. And it's basically um, an anthology in individual books. <laughs> really. Um, it's called Sistema Paradoxa. And they are series of cryptid novellas. Ooh. So they're not short stories, but they're not novels either. And this was a lot of fun to work on. Everything from the design of the book itself and the subject matter. And even though each book is individual, it creates a whole. And for me, the process is a lot like when I'm putting together anthologies because they're very closely linked in the feel. You know, how we designed the book. Um, in the back, we have an encyclopedia entry with a piece of artwork that looks like it came out of encyclopedia, you know, done in that same kind of mm. style and everything outlining what people believe about whatever cryptid was in the book. So um, it's very stylized and each book holds a similar feel to the next one. Oh, okay. So right now that's my favorite baby. <laughs> so I'm getting the feeling that you might have took some inspirations from like telenovelas. Am I correct? And you wanted to put um, some a cryptic message on it or was it more just no, no. novella platform no the novella is uh it's longer than a short story but mm. it's shorter than a novel oh okay so all of these are about thirty thousand words oh okay and cryptids are if you're not familiar with it are basically creatures that people say exist yeah but there is no physical evidence yeah so like bigfoot yeah um Loch Ness, believe it or not, the gorilla used to be a cryptid. So, uh, it, the, the word comes from cryptozoology. Mm-hmm. I love cryptozoology. And, it's always yeah. felt fascinating to see if the Loch Ness monster is always true or anything <laughs> else. Oh! So, all of these books are the author's take on individual cryptids, and we're specifically focusing on the lesser-known cryptids. Like the Chupacabra? Uh, well, he's a little bit more known, but like this one that I held up 
is the Wonk. Oh. And we have done Mantis Man. And I have done Montauk Monster. We have done some of the more well-known ones, like one of the, the Montauk Monster also has Bigfoot in it. And we've done the Jersey Devil. But most mm. of them are lesser known. Uh, sewer blob, but you know, the ones that don't get a lot of airtime. Oh, okay, okay. There's a story behind the series. We were actually approached by a monthly subscription box called Cryptid Crate, and they're looking for cryptid fiction that isn't the ones that everyone knows. You know, they wanted to explore other cryptids and they wanted to see if we had any content. At the time, we didn't. I was familiar with cryptids, but we hadn't gone in that direction. And they said, do you have anything? And I said, no, but we could. <laughs> and within six months, we were working on the first volume in the series. And it's oh, been okay. a whirlwind, but it is so much fun. True. I really think, does it have any relation to, like, telenovelas? Or is that a totally different uh, entertainment platform? It's, it's different it's definitely <laughs> different but i think it's probably i'm not very familiar with telenovelas yeah but these are basically hmm, how would i put it? It, it it's just that it's it goes into more depth than you get in a short story oh okay but you're not making the commitment that you make for a novel interesting so is each so, uh, act one, act two different uh, novellas that put the book together, or is it a little bit more than that? Um, each book is one novella. Oh, okay. Oh. And it creates the Sistema Paradoxa series. And eventually, we're going to do true anthologies. But right now, we're, we're working on getting the content out. They, um, Crypticrate is actually creating exclusive quarterly boxes featuring the series. So, so we're, we're cranking out the content for that, and then we're going to start exploring different anthology options. Interesting. So it's like almost there to anthology uh, level, you just... You're trying to make it like that. Exactly. Oh, okay. Ah, oh, so it wasn't related to the questions of your favorite anthology air quotes. She put yeah. a, <laughs> you put air quotes around it and it's like, well, it's kind of like anthology, but it's not anthology yet, but it still counts. Exactly. <laughs> and my, my favorite true anthology at this time is Afterpunk. Oh, okay. We uh we explored a lot of interesting aspects, like the um since it's steampunk, it was more of a Victorian nature. So we had people that explored the death photography. Um, that used to be something that people did in that time when photography was just starting to be a thing. If somebody died, sometimes the only photograph of you of them that you had was after they died. You posed them and you took a picture. Um, and other people did the automatic writing, meaning in the anthology. 
um, myself, I examined the Day of the Dead tradition and um, the mythology behind crows being able to see the dead and all of that. Um, but one of the reasons I really like themed anthologies, and, and I, should, I should take a step back, you were asking about my submission guidelines. So something that I do that is different than a lot of venues, I, we have very limited staff. So I don't do an open submission. I will ask individual people or I will spread the word among selected groups just so that I can keep the submissions manageable because I read and comment on everyone even if I haven't officially accepted the story yet. I give them a chance to bring it up to what I would like it to be and then I decide what goes in the book. So one of my specific submission guidelines is, is that when you propose something, you, you can't just submit to me. You have to give me a proposal of what you want to write. And I give you the go ahead and you go ahead and write it. And oh, it. okay. So it's like and that way you have a little bit of control um, of then basically talking to you, proposing it like a movie. They write the film proposal and then they get the quote-unquote approval and or quote-unquote budget to go ahead to make the project. Exactly. And the reason that I do that is I, I don't have enough time for hundreds and thousands of submissions. I can't do an open submission call. Um, and I really, really hate having to reject a story because I might have three others like it. So by having the authors tell me specifically what they want to write, I can make sure that there's a lot of diverse content in the book and nobody is writing the same story as somebody else. True. Because it doesn't always work. True. But. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a vendor. You have someone that's selling something. You don't want the same person beside you to sell the same thing you do. Let's say, exactly. I don't know, we have music. So this person's selling D, uh, CDs, and then the next person beside them, their music of a choice is not CDs, but records. Yeah. How are you going to have that, like, the similar... But the same industry back to back, people are going to say, well, hmm. Yeah. I have actually done events. Um, I vend at science fiction conventions and renaissance fairs and such. And I had an agreement once. I also make custom costume horns. And somebody approached me to be the horn vendor at their event. And I was supposed to be the only one. And they had someone else that was selling mixed items and happened to have horns included. And they didn't realize that. And when they set up their festival, they had to, you know, some people had to be away from where the vendors were. I happened to be one of them. And so 
the person that had the cheap little plastic horns that they bought from China ended up selling all the horns. And I sold almost no horns the entire week, weekend. Huh. So it's, it's, it's like that. You, you don't want repetition. You don't want stories competing against each other in that way. Yeah. Because you could end up having to reject a really good story just because someone else submitted something already that was just as good and too close to the same thing. True, and put you into a weird situation. Do I take this story that's going to distract my my reader's attention from this particular story, well, this story is similar, would the same stories get similar recognition if I do that? Yeah. I won't let them put me in that position. They got to tell me what they want to do, and it has to be different. Oh, okay. So you don't want someone to, you don't want to be, you don't want them to be like you, complaining about horns, when, <laughs> ba- you don't want them to be in the situation selling horns, and then, they find out that someone else saw the horns and away from everyone selling the horns. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's, that's just oh, that's an interesting story though. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I want to give people. I want to give people variety. I, I uh, want them to not be bored. True. And en- enjoy every page. And you can't do that if you have repetitive. True. Uh, that's what I kind of I try to make with the podcast kind of thing, is I try to diversify my topics I choose. I don't particularly mm-hmm. stay on one topic for very long. It's like usually one and done topics, and then I go to the next episode. Or sometimes, the way I have it set up right now, I got anime, which is an ongoing topic with multiple mini topics, geek culture. Japanese aesthetics and Asian studies. Four different categories, but all different topics that you can cover within each one. Yep. So that's kind of how I define myself. Because I didn't want to just define myself to one area. So we were kind of like on bridge with theme a little bit. What is the philosophy behind theme anthologies that really capture the reader's attention? So, the problem that you run into with a non-themed anthology is that you're likely to only... Only part of the content will appeal to individual readers. A lot of people have preferences. And if you have a mixed anthology, meaning all different genres or just random stories, then people can't make a decision based on the content just by knowing that it's a themed mm-hmm. anthology. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they don't know what they're getting, and they may not enjoy all of it. Whereas if it's a themed anthology, then it's already speaking to something that that person enjoyed. Like the Badass Fairies anthology. This just took off and had a life of its own because a lot of people like fairies. 
and True. we could touch on different genres. Like we, most of them are fantasy stories, but there's some science fiction and stuff. We we ended up doing four volumes with the original publisher before um, we split away. Um, and so for the Badass Fairy series, all you had to do was take something people recognized as badass and paired it with a fairy. So for me, I all my stories in the series are about biker fairies. <laughs> because our goal is to de-Disneyfy the fairy. Um. And people can't think about bikers without thinking badass. Oh, and it translates it. really well. <laughs> I had Bi- done a good job. I wasn't disowned. <laughs> Bikers. Where did that come from? So, when we came up with the idea for the anthology, I had been going to RavenCon, actually. And oh. on the way down, we passed the biker stampede. And it was an awe-inspiring sight. And we couldn't stop, but it stretched long enough that as we're driving, I'm just I'm just seeing all of this and, and feeling the energy of it and, and seeing the visuals without even having to take my eyes off the road. And I just knew at some point I wanted to write a story that incorporated that. And then we had the idea for the Badass Fairies anthologies. And like I said, you took something from the modern day that everybody just automatically accepts as badass, and then you incorporate a fairy magical element. Okay. And actually, originally, I had let someone else take the the biker fairy concept and write a story, and they really disappointed me. <laughs> and and so that story didn't get used, and I and I took that on one on my own. Oh. And so far. It's spawned two novels, and I'm working on a third. And it's just a lot of fun playing with the concepts because some of the stories were humorous, and some of them were serious, and the biker fairy stories kind of mix them both. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of jargon and slang, and just they have their own language for certain things. And you can find plenty of websites that, that tell you what the different biker terms mean. Write them out in, in normal English. <laughs> um, and so I was able to incorporate a lot of that. But the other thing that I did is in Scary Mythos, one of the repeating tropes is that they blend with their environment. They adapt. And so the nature of what they were long ago isn't necessarily the same as what they are now. Wait. So one of the ways that I incorporated that is there's a road gremlin because it's an actual part of the biker culture. They have what they call a ride bell, a little pewter bell that they attach to their bike. And the ringing is supposed to scare away the road gremlin. And if it doesn't scare it away, it traps it in the bell. And it keeps you safe. <laughs> it, it actually comes out of the tradition, because the, the original biker gang or biker club 
were retired Air Force. And in the Air Force, you know, when they were coming back from World War II, World War One, I'm not sure exactly at the point that these the culture started. Um, but when something went wrong with the planes, it was gremlins. And so when they became the biker culture, that transitioned into road gremlins. Hmm. And I, I just, I had a lot of fun playing with oh, that. Oh, okay. Usually when I think of gremlins, I get like the little, I don't know, the multicolored small face of creatures that go in and just start messing everything up. They start dismantling the bike or the motor starts, bolts start flying away out of that one piece. Oh, wait, that was supposed to go to the motor. It's not in the motor anymore. And mid motor is going <laughs> to. <Yep. laughs> and that's exactly where I go with it. Oh, my but gosh. The, but the, the cool thing is, is that while it's a very serious situation, mm -hmm. I use characters like that to introduce humor. And the interaction between my main character and the road the road gremlin is priceless. Oh. It's the character that everybody loves to hate. Mm, true. <laughs> and I have to tell you, his name is Smear. <laughs> Smear? <laughs> Smear are all over you? <laughs> oh, Smear. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I don't want to make Smear mad because if Smear comes <laughs> after me, I'm not going to have a good time, because Gremlin, they dismantle everything, and they're just going to make everything hectic. Yeah. So, uh, is interesting that you put in there. What was the fairy aspect that you kind of went with? So, in my reality, the, the, this doesn't come out in the stories as much, but the novel that came out of the stories is called The Havelings Court. Mm-hmm. And basically, the idea is that the court of the Fae is crumbling. It's falling apart. And those who resist and object to what's happening in the fairy court come to the human world. And most of them that do end up in this one bike club called the Wild Hunt. And the leader is a halfling. In the context of the story, that means he's half human and half half fairy. fairy. And so the king of the Fae court sees this halfling as challenging his power because he's amassing his own court in the uh, context of this motor club because any fae that leave if they go into that culture they go into that club and they follow him and he doesn't even know he, he knows his nature but he doesn't know um, that he is basically inadvertently issuing a challenge to the fairy king interesting so and this idea of fairy and the court of fae was it integrated in the short story, like small details, or it was introduced in the short story, um, touched on because basically the king of the fae struck out at the bike club, 
um, the first story, they capture someone from the bike club who happens to be a full fae, and and the whole point of the story is getting her back. It's called At the Crossroads, and I incorporated a lot of the tropes of classic fairy fiction and fairy lore, where you battle at the crossroads with the Fae in that particular story. So I kind of had an idea where I was going with it, but I hadn't fully developed where oh, I was going to go okay. in the novel. So there are aspects there. And yeah. each one of the stories, um, I think there were three or four stories before I actually wrote the novel. And each one was a different attempt hmm. on the leader of the bike club by the Fae. When I think of crossroads, I think of like one different road, but with two different directions, but it all, it seems as one direction. But if you go off of it, you're into the crossroads and you actually go into the Fae world, the Fae court kind of thing, right? Um, that's one approach. Definitely. Okay. Um, it's the crossroads where two roads literally cross and mm -hmm. where the dimensions cross. Ah, okay. It's kind of interesting. There's a lot there's a lot of stuff you can do with that that you can actually be like yep. really creative with. Uh, the symbolism that you can do with it is very high. I feel yep. like if one place deserves a lot of symbolism is like where does the crossroads intersect? If the Fae is actually in the bike gang, uh, similarities of Fae culture coming to the bike culture and how they intertwine it. There's a lot to actually cover there. Yeah. And, and I hit a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I really enjoyed hearing about the bikers and the fairies and how the Fae, the fae court coming in. Uh, you know, stories are really interesting because you get that creative element to write it, to put your own spin on it, your vision of sorts, to tell it. Yeah, and that's one of the joys of themed anthologies. Um, when I've submitted to themed anthologies, I delight in taking that theme and coming at it from as far to the side as I can in the most unexpected way because you know when there's a themed anthology that there are if they don't follow my process there's going to be a lot of overlap a lot of very similar stories that are just going to sound one after the other exactly the same with just minor changes in the details um and so i always look for the most unexpected way to approach that theme um, Padwolf Publishing did a book called New Blood, an anthology called New Blood, that's supposed to be all newly turned vampires. And it's very difficult to, um, to do something different with that yeah, when true. the entire book is about newly turned vampires. So I asked the editor what she was hoping to get that nobody had given her. And she said science fiction. And so 
my vampire story has absolutely no lore or biological difference in it that you would expect for a vampire. Let's see. Vampire science fiction. I think a vampire is a disease and an epidemic of vampirism. Yeah, it's totally not where I went, though. <laughs> I mean, I, that's where I go when I think of that. But what did you... It's been long enough that I'm not really giving any spoilers. Oh. Um, oh, so this is a I... recent one. No, the, the, the New Blood has been out probably for about 15 years. Um, and my oh, okay. story... My vampire was a cyborg. <laughs> oh gosh, I love and, it. And he, the only part left of him was his brain, and it was preserved in a plasma solution. And the corporation that that created the cyborg element of him wanted to safeguard their investment. And they put a chemical imperative programmed into his system, into the suit, that he had to save himself. He had to safeguard his existence. And so if something starts to go wrong with the plasma, like it gets dirty and, it, and, and he can't replace it the way he's supposed to, he must find another source. So the alternative source is blood? Blood, blood plasma. plasma? Interesting. And so there you have the vampire. <laughs> so and, and it actually really works. Um, it, it, you never... I won't say you never, but in, in a lot of cases when you set out to write a story and you have an idea of where the core of that story is, it often develops in very unexpected ways. True. And True. this story, it gave me chills at how it hit all of those proper notes for mm -hmm. a vampire story without actually being your traditional vampire. True. And also, the interesting thing about blood plasma, it's, blood plasma is like, what, the second most popular donation for any type of blood? Yeah. So, because, because a lot of people need it, and it. more people, you can get, instead of just whole blood, which is one person, plasma, you can get yeah. like nine different people with it. And actually benefit yep. from. I don't know. That's kind of interesting. Because. Basically the, the vampire cyborg. Runs on the blood plasma. So what? Is that. He's getting the most. The best part of the blood. That can stretch out the furthest. To different amounts of people. Is that what you kind of went with it? where he's trapped he and other people are trapped and they are not rescued in time mm. for for him to sustain himself any other way true and Ooh. involuntarily <laughs> here's an idea 
is it possible that he has to keep getting more blood plasma because it, it, it keeps getting contaminated because it's not his original plasma? Is that why he keeps seeking out more plasma? So, because the concept is, is that his brain is encased yeah. in this pool of plasma, um, it works just the way that your blood would. Mm-hmm. You know, when when it goes in your system and, and you release different chemicals and everything, um, it dirties the blood, and then your liver filters it and cleans it and then puts it back through the body. But in the type of system that he has, it needs to be replaced every so often. Interesting. Because it can't be filtered sufficiently um, to continually sustain him. So I'm guessing it's like a system that he can extract the bad blood when the new blood comes in so the bad blood goes out? Oh, I like that. That's, you have so many layers to that. I just don't know how to comment on it. <laughs> it's like, you thought of this, you thought of this. This system even went to as far as this particular thing to separate the bad blood from the new blood. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that is definitely science fiction. And you yeah. told me that was a vampire cyborg. People would be looking and like, Huh, I guess it is a vampire. It doesn't seem as a vampire, but I guess yeah. it's a vampire-ish situation. It's my job as an author to sell you on the points that I am making. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. So we heard about your process about anthology submitting, organizing that submitting, formatting a certain theme, Let's see if you can match a certain theme and then see if you can get like different. I want to pick your brain about this. So let's say I want to do an anthology about love, but I want it to be the untraditional type of love. The ones that goes out of immediate family and personal relationships. How would you go about collecting those stories if I was a, a sponsor for you to do this service? that I do is I come up with a title mm-hmm. that will be catchy and and just engage the potential reader immediately. So like I did this with a dragon anthology. Um, I showed you oh <laughs> too many books here. I showed you the cover for No Longer Dreams. This was the first yeah. anthology we did and it has a dragon on the cover. Not one of the stories is about dragons. And so eventually they're like, well, why don't you have one about dragons? And I came up with the idea of dragon's lore. Only spelled L-U-R-E. <laughs> and of stories about dragons. There's, there's so much mythology about dragons in every culture. And they all have different things that tempt the dragon. Oh, like you this dragon with virgins. This one sleeps on a bed of gold. This one tries to capture the moon. So we created Dragon's Lore, and that was the take that we did on it. So oh. all the stories were about dragons, but they were all so different because they took something different. Interesting. 
that they were after. So I would do the same thing with a love theme. I would I would come up with some what like love ever after, or um, love beyond well, bonds. Love no no bounds. Mm-hmm. But um let's see. Oh, love is not what it seems. There you go. <laughs> love is not what it well, seems. We would start with that as a premise, but we would spin a title um a little bit more intriguing, a little bit less That's obvious, yeah. You want you want to you want to tease people. Mm-hmm. You, you want you want to capture their attention, but leave them with questions. That's the key to book design and, and and putting together an anthology, is to capture their interest, but leave them not quite sure what they're gonna get, mm, because true. the title catches their eye. Yeah. The cover makes them interested. Gotcha. If they look at the cover, they're going to turn it over to see what it's actually about. The back cover leaves them with more questions because it's a teaser. It's mm-hmm. not a synopsis. Yeah. And then they open the book. And if you've done your job right, by the time they open the book, they're opening their wallet. <laughs> true, true. So what would I do with love? don't think I would use the word love. Yeah, you will try to say it's something else. It's not what it seems. Yes. So if you don't use the word, you kind of get that impression that it might not be what you think. And also because there are so there's so much preconceived understanding of what you mean when you say love. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would actually go with the tides that bind rather than the ties that bind. Oh. To give that concept of the beating heart and, and the connection and, and then go from there. Um, and because the love could be like the love of the ocean or the love of a concept or, or whatever. You know, there's a lot of different takes that it could be beyond romantic love. Yeah. Um, love of self. You know, there's so many different ways that you could go with a love anthology that's not a romance anthology. True. And actually, and we, given the title, love, you know, the theme, love is not what it seems, you know, Tom Beyond Bonds kind of thing, you also, you like... Spinet has an anthology about love, but love and as a concept, the ocean. You can have all that as a of separate stories. Follow your passion. Yeah. Uh, uh, love is an endearment. Love is an attachment. Love is something you don't have. It's uncontrollable. Things that move you. Yeah. Put you that inspiration, your dream job. You love it so much, but you just 
you don't put love with the job until you actually get the job. Mm-hmm. So your dream job is what you love to do. People say, I love to do this. That type of philosophy can also work. Yep. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have, a, a, just continue the theme because it's actually been kind of interesting to have a conversation with about who you go to to ask for specific entries about love. So for me, I have a core um, group of authors mm-hmm. that I know that I'm going to get quality writing and they know how my process is and it works well together. They, they enjoy um, the unusual spins that we take on things. Um, like we did steampunk fairy tales and then the book was Gaslight and Grimm. And that was really well received. So we're going to do another one called Grim Machinations, which is all fairy tales that are either um, schemes or con men were creators. So like the elf and the shoemaker or Puss in Boots, where they're trying to trick the king, playing that twist on the different meanings of machinations. Wait. Because... Gaslight and Grimm. That's sounding familiar. Were you at another convention talk about an anthology I'm panel? Sure. I'm sure. I've been to Ravencon, so I'm, I'm presuming you have as well. Um, well, no, I'm just... trying to think of where I heard Gaslight. I, I, I recently did... Uh, there was a particular convention way back. It was like a black theme. I, I don't know, but they mentioned Gaslight and Grimm because there were there were like four different anthology writers and publishers talking about different anthologies and how they do it. Yes. So I, I, it may have been me, or it may have been one of the contributors. I'm not sure. <laughs> that's like you know what gaslighting glim sounds familiar and i haven't heard it since then so you, that kind of just brings me thinking that's all yeah yeah and it even did cyber long i think they were talking about cyberpunk fairy tales as well <laughs> yeah oh well, boy we're, we're going into thief of punk next thief of punk Thiefel Punk. Thiefel Punk. What's Thiefel Punk? So, <laughs> so steampunk is Victorian era. Yes. Where you have steam technology. Yeah. And Diesel Punk is oh, diesel. The World War era, right okay. after steampunk, where it's more gas driven and such and political. Huh. So you're going to go Diesel Punk. Yeah. Because surprisingly, I cannot find any other diesel punk fiction, but the era that it encompasses is pretty popular. It's like um, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow and the Rocketeer, those who would be considered diesel punk. Hmm. And, and there's a lot of movies and such that would fall into that genre. 
but you you see relatively little fiction. And I had a concept that I really wanted to play with, and and that's the perfect venue for it. So. Ooh, that does sound exciting. <laughs> the collection will be Grease Monkeys, the heart and soul of Diesel Punk. <laughs> I love and it. And it's going to going to focus on all the mechanics that maintain <laughs> technology as opposed to the inventors which is what steampunk mostly focuses on interesting so instead of the people that invent it you and the people that do the maintenance and do the label to to maintain the invention that's kind of interesting that, that you taken that uh you yeah. take a, a very obscure genre that doesn't have much to do about and you put your own twist on yeah that, that's where the fun is <laughs> so you want to do a, a continuation of steampunk but you didn't know how to do it so diesel punk was like the next move up well i don't know if i would i don't know if i would say that um i mean there's there's infinite ways that you can just keep playing with steampunk but there's a lot of it out there yeah the, the concept for Grease Monkeys was a cool concept, and there isn't a lot out there, so it's a new playground for me to play in, just because the concept itself is cool. True. And that audience, what do you think that marketing would be for the demographic? There's a lot of people, a lot of people that are into steampunk mm-hmm. would have a similar affiliation for diesel punk, or it may just be something different that will catch someone's eye just because it's different rather than you know just like a hundred other books that came out this year true because it all really comes down to capture the reader's attention and uh Uh give them the story that is worth their time and just juicy enough to read exactly and you know we've been like i said it's been 15 years and we've done so many different anthologies. The Badass Fairy series had four volumes. The Defending the Future, we were on eight volumes and we're planning more. Uh, we have another series called Beyond the Cradle, which is more, instead of military science fiction, it's just technical science fiction. And we have two volumes in that series. And there's an, any number of individual collections that we've done that aren't a part of the series. Mm. And we've, we've gotten something of a reputation just for fun, interesting books with different content. True. You know, have you ever had your readers become a writer for your anthology? Oh, definitely. Definitely. There, there's uh, quite a few of our authors that have transitioned from fan to family. Oh, okay. Now, was there any particular fans who were not originally authors, but gave a try at it and actually were successful? Uh, that's a little hard, little harder for me to know. <laughs> um, because generally, I go to most of the conventions I go to are literary conventions. Mm-hmm. And so the people that are drawn to me are mostly hopeful writers. <laughs> and that's why they end up at the literary convention. So I don't know if anybody started from scratch 
you know, reading our books and writing because of the books. Generally, they have at least some interest in it to begin with. We have given a lot of people their first opportunity, but I don't know if, if we turned them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it is kind of hard to know. It's like, well, that's data that I just don't have because it, we don't send out polls like that. <laughs> oh, but yeah. So that brings up a good question: Have you actually done a poll, and you actually had general fans give you general feedback from that poll? Um, I don't generally do that. Okay. I have people tell me at events different things. Mm -hmm. You know, things they like, things they wish that we would do more of, that type of thing. Um. But mostly my social media, I use to talk or to let people know about things, meaning, meaning talks, conversations, and stuff like that. Um, I don't mind them for information. Mm -hmm. I kind of should, but I'm stretched in so many different directions that uh, there's a lot of stuff I should do that I don't. <laughs> True. Now, would you trust a fan to make an entire anthology series and you back in them or that be difficult? Um, I certainly would help someone along the way. Gotcha. Like if they had questions or something like that. Um, but as a publisher, we, we have partnered with people on collections that they wanted to do, but I think for the most part, it is best if we generate anthologies and then recruit people to work on them rather than them bringing us collections, because inevitably something goes wrong there, there ends up being a conflict between their vision and our vision or, you know, their process and our process. And it's sadly, it's, it doesn't make for, for good friendships. <laughs> it <laughs> it's causes like, tension that's, that's better avoided. So they're like the better enemy that you never wanted, but you got them. Yeah. I, I, I'm much happier to help you realize your own vision, but you do it yourself. <laughs> um, then to just because uh, there's just always ends up being some type of a conflict. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, as we take this to a close, is there a particular message you want the audience to know for the for the podcast about anthology, submitting themed anthologies, and overall? Organizing anthologies. Oh, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> Overall, I will say, um, from someone who wants to put together an anthology, be clear of what you're looking for and what is required to get there. Understand the steps. Um, know what makes a good book before you try to do it yourself. Get mentorship, read, do the research, whatever it takes. Um, don't just decide you're going to do it and 
and then just kind of wander around in the dark until yeah. you get something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, take the time to do it right. And for someone submitting to anthologies, have fun with it. Yeah. Stay Throw within away. the guidelines, but yeah, be able to submit it with a reasonable time and matching theme, if it's theme, or matching guidelines. And and throw away your first three ideas because everyone else and their brother got them too. Look for the most unusual way that you can meet that theme because then you're going to stand out because you didn't do what everyone else did. True. Oh, okay. Um, follow the guidelines. Follow the guidelines. Follow the guidelines. Um, be receptive to feedback. Mm-hmm. If an editor has taken the time to review your work and give you feedback, I'm not saying you have to unilaterally accept whatever they say. Just take your the grain of salt. But um, don't just automatically disregard it because you think your work is perfect. If they're pointing something out, it's because there is some issue there. And if you don't want to use whatever way they have recommended you fix it, find a way that addresses the issue and fixes the issue within your own context, within your own creativity. Um, Be willing to work with the editors because that's what they're there for. And they're the ones paying for the work. Yeah. Those are the big things. And also, I think with anthology, I really like... It's, it's, it's a collection of different authors, different stories. So there's always going to be a, there's going to be at least one or two stories for you that you really enjoy. And then some that, in the middle, some that, not so much your favorite, but there's going to be that varying content that the anthology brings because not every story has different content like that. So that's a plus. Also know that just because they're doing an anthology doesn't mean it's inferior work. Trust me, because (laughs) you'd be surprised of how much work is actually put into it that the author who submitted the story wanted to be recognized in the anthology. And uh, one final note that I like to say is don't forget, be creative, be you, and also try to bring the epiphany moment for the story submitting in the anthology if you're doing it. Even if you're not doing an anthology, if you're writing, have that epiphany moment because that's what sells your work as an author that makes you validated by the work you have done previously before. Definitely. If you don't believe in it, why will they? Exactly. The audience won't follow it and it's just going to cause a, a downhill spiral that you can't, might not be able to get out of. <laughs> Something else that I will say, um, if you write in short fiction and you write for anthologies, Try to 
one of the things that I and several authors that I know do is they have a universe that they write in where they've already done all the background work. They already know the world and the characters, mm -hmm. and they find a way to put those characters in a situation that meets that theme. And that way they build the body of work that they can later turn into a novel like I did or a collection, something that readers will recognize from book to book, no matter who publishes it, um, to create an ongoing thread. That way you have multiple levels of interest. You have existing readers that will want to see what happens next and new readers that will seek out the other stories because gotcha. they've gotten to like the characters in this one. Hi. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Uh, please don't forget to support Daniel Atley McHale, McHale and also be able to go to her, read some of the anthologies she has done, you know, submit one if you want to. Maybe she'll connect you and then get you in the process that way. But just be generally excited when you go to her because she wants specific things and she has specific ideas and you can possibly be part of it. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. And uh, where can they find you again on social media wise? So I am on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram um, as myself, Daniel Ackley McPhail or Eastbeck Books or Systema Paradoxa. Mm -hmm. Um I am at many of the North Northeast science fiction conventions. I'm going to Balticon in a couple of weeks. Um, and we have a, a website for the publishing house, which is eastbeckbooks.com. But we also have an online store, which is eastbeckbooks.square.site, where you can find out about all of our books and also order them. Mm. Um, you can pretty much find me anywhere. <laughs> gotcha. Well, thank you for being here. And uh, before we go, MCMA Podcast is anywhere you can find podcasts. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Our Heart Radio, Amazon Music. Uh, we have Patreon going. Uh, you can find us on the website at mcanimepodcast.com. So... Keep in line, that's ncmapodcast.com. And overall, thank you for having us. And uh, it was a pleasure talking with you, Danielle. Likewise. Thank you for being here, and it was a great episode. I'm glad that you enjoyed. Thank you for inviting me. Bye, y'all. Bye.